Welcome to Wedding Photographers Unite, episode number 25. I'm one of your two hosts today. Uh, well, actually, two hosts and a wonderful guest that we'll get to in just a moment. Mm-hmm. Andy Buscemi, in good company with the mythical legend himself, <laughs> Mr. Neil Urban. Neil, how's it going? It's good to see your smiling I'm good, face I know. Today. It's, we're back in person. No more online stuff, back and forth. So it's good to see you right across the table from me. So yeah. And we, welcome back. And Neil, we can hear it in your voice today because you've got that Because I have nice a fancy mic right in front of me. Big booming <laughs> microphone with all that bass. It's nice to hear that again. Um, and uh, listeners, uh, we are joined by a very special guest today. Um, I'm going to give uh, read a little bit of his bio um, and introduce him. Uh, his name is Mr. Jim Cavanaugh. And uh, here's, here's a little bit about Jim Cavanaugh. Um, after graduating from the New England School of Photography in 1975, Jim Cavanaugh returned to Buffalo, New York to establish his first studio. For 10 years, he provided a wide range of photographic services to both consumer and commercial clients in Western New York. In 1986, Jim redirected his business and focused his marketing and creative efforts on architectural, interior, and aerial photography. Today, he is recognized as a leading specialist in these areas. His clients include local and national architects, engineers, interior designers, contractors, real estate developers, architectural product manufacturers, and government agencies. His images have seen publications including Architectural Record, the ASMP Bulletin, World Architecture, Reader's Digest, Progressive Architecture, Rolling Stone, Business Week, American Banker, SSL, Seaway Review, Parents, Women's World, Ladies Home Journal, Tech Bits, um, Rangefinder, and digi- uh, Design Portfolio. Jim was also featured in Eastman Kodak's uh, Vision in View video program. For six years, Jim taught professional business practices in photography at Villa Maria College in Buffalo and is a frequent guest lecturer at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Jim is a member of the American Society of Media Photographers. He is a former national director and past president of the association. Uh, he is a former director of the Media Photographers Copyright Agency, and he's also served as chairman of the ASMP Special, Specialty Group Relations Committee and was a chairman of the Business Practices Committee of ASMP Architecture. He's a two-time past president of the Western New York chapter of American Society of Media Photographers, Jim is an allied member of the Buffalo Western New York chapter of American Institute of Architects. He is a strong advocate of copyright issues and ethical business practices in photography. So that's uh, wow. that's quite quite <laughs> the bio there, and uh, it's it's an absolute it's an honor to have you on the show. Um, we're very lucky to have uh, to have you in our local community here in Buffalo. So. Uh, Jim, hello and welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank Appreciate you. it being here Thank on you your silver on. anniversary show. Oh, oh absolutely, yeah. <laughs> 25. Yeah, 25, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. And okay. um, um, we're just going to get started with some questions, and Jim has a lot to say, which is, <laughs> just, which is a good thing. And, <laughs> and in particular, um, we'll get started, since we're a wedding photography podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about Jim's background and, mm-hmm. and how he, where he is today and, and how things have gone. So, uh, Jim, my first question for you is um, if you can explain uh, to our listeners your experience as a wedding photographer years ago versus what you see happening in today's digital world. Um, and then is there anything in particular that sticks out for you as being drastically different or similar? And as you respond, if you can, just, if you can yeah. be right into the mic on this, because of the, the yeah, everything. Things. Well, uh, starting out the, the back end of the, the question is everything is different today, except for the fact that we have photographers going out to document weddings. 
but the business is unrecognizable to what it was when I started out as a 21-year-old kid 40 years ago. Um, I was trained as a commercial photographer but took portrait and wedding classes in school. And I got back to Buffalo, and the first thing I did is I knocked on all the photographers' doors in town looking for a job. And it was very interesting, and it's not much different today when we hear people say it's really tough out there, it's competitive. When I started knocking on doors, I would show my portfolio, and I, it was almost like somebody had sent out a memo because I got the same answer from almost every photographer in Buffalo. They basically patted me on the head and said, gee, you seem like a nice young kid, and your portfolio is pretty good for student work, but gee, things are tough right now, and I've had to lay a couple people off, and business is a little slow, and it's very competitive with all these new people coming in, and so I just can't hire anybody new. So I took that rejection in hand, and I went out, and I said, well, I'm a commercial photographer. So I went on, got my very best uh, brown suit and brown shoes, and started knocking on doors of ad agencies. And they had a script. Again, they patted me on the head and said, gee, you seem like a talented young kid, and your portfolio looks pretty good for a student, yeah. but we can't risk our client's advertising project because you don't have a name, you don't have a record, you don't have a studio, you don't have the support staff. And basically they said, we'd love to use you, but we can't. So the easy way in for me is I finally hooked up with AMA's portrait studio and they sent me out on weddings. And my first wedding they sent me out on was the very first wedding I had ever attended. <laughs> and okay. they, I had my Mamaya C330 twin lens reflex and two lenses and they gave me five rolls of 120 film. That meant I could take 60 photographs of the entire <laughs> wedding, and they had a little checklist. And I went out, I was nervous as all get out. I shot the wedding, and I thought I did pretty good. So I went back a week later, I got to see the proofs before they delivered them to the clients, and I said, gee, I, I did a pretty decent job. And they said, no, they're beautiful. We wanna send you right out this weekend. <laughs> and by the fifth weekend out, when I went back to look at the pictures, uh, they said, oh, we've got to get you booked on everything. We were having our highest sales ever with what you photographed. Wow. And I'm like, oh, really? Maybe it's time I should be doing this for myself. <laughs> and I was being paid a whopping $125 a wedding back then. Now, we do have to remember this is back in 1975, so you have to have a multiplication factor of somewhere north of two and a half times uh, to bring it to today's dollars. So I set off on my own. Uh, began doing weddings and uh, first year maybe did four and it escalated very quickly so I went from four in 1976 to about 120 years uh, by 1980 mm. and at that point I had grown to a point where I had a staff of 14 full and part-time people including three other shooters and we were really breaking ground but one of the things that to sort of step aside and talk about the changes and how we worked through some of those changes is that wedding photography was a mature industry at that point in time and everyone not just in town but nationally pretty much did it the same way it was a very commodity oriented type of product and you were selling the service to photograph the weddings and usually a, a wedding album with 18 24 36 or if you had a huge client 48 8 by 10s in that album maybe a couple of parent albums and hopefully extra five by sevens or um, framed wall portraits and such. Mm. So everything was based on selling the products. 
beyond what the, the basic coverage is. And in the basic coverages, those albums were included. So when I started, that's exactly how we operated because everybody did it that way. Hmm. But very quickly on, we got involved with a group. It was a consulting group called the Lyle Ramsey Network. And this fellow Lyle Ramsey actually owned a, a set of color labs and he was looking to develop business for people to have all their printing done. So he started a consulting side business for the wedding photographers who were in this group. And he would send you once a month uh, an audio tape on an audio cassette. Hmm. And you would listen to his hour of motivational speaking, but also marketing ideas. Mm -hmm. And he started with the idea of changing the game completely and starting to think about shooting more photojournalistically, starting to shoot more uh, in a storytelling mode rather than the specific posed pictures that were traditional mm -hmm. at that time. And to me, it was very exciting. And it was a very interesting um, approach. So we jumped out. And we started doing an average of about 220 photographs, which by today's standards is nothing. That, that's the bride getting ready at her home. But back then, all the other photographers in Buffalo explained how I was going to go out of business and bankrupt because I couldn't afford to handle all that film, do all those proofs, and, and deal with everything. Well, what wound up happening is that we tied it together with an engagement session uh, which we called the love story coverage <laughs> from back then. And we would go out of the studio, which no one did at that point in time. We'd go to Delaware Park, or we'd go to Hoyt Lake, or we'd go uh, to the Botanical Gardens, and we would take this sort of Hallmark card series of photographs of these um, the couples. And it was a situation where uh, it caught on like wildfire. Mm -hmm. And so again, the, our curve on how many weddings we did it and how our business grew was exponential. but. The interesting thing is, as I mentioned, at, at, at our peak point, I had 14 people working for me. Mm. And what we wound up doing was having to promote, get more weddings, do as much work as possible just to feed the machine. Mm. It was a scenario that our, as we expanded the business, because there was such a high product cost involved in wedding photography at that time, that our cost also went up um, uh, commensurate with those expansions. Mm -hmm. And by 1980, I started looking at the numbers, actually the end of 1979, and while well, we were doing 120 weddings and our average sale was about $1,200, $1,250 per wedding, and again, using that multiplying factor for what today would be, mm -hmm. we get to the end of the year and find that on our wedding business, it generated tremendous uh, cash flow revenue, mm -hmm. and it fed the machine, it paid for the studio, paid for the employees, paid for all the other expenses involved but no profits at the back end. Mm -hmm. And the little bit of commercial work and the portrait work that I was doing in the business as, a, as part of the whole business program, that's where the profits were being made. So mm -hmm. at the end of 1979, right on January 1st, I reached a decision, <laughs> no longer gonna do wedding photography. Now, part of that was <laughs> the, the financial aspect that yeah. we were just turning dollars, lots of dollars, but we we're just turning them. But also, I'm the kind of guy that doesn't like to be told a week from Friday where I need to be. <laughs> and when I made that decision on January 1st of 1980, I was already booked for weddings as far as May of 82. Mm, so I wow. had two and a half more years of work to do and, and they, they trailed off. And, and that started a, a, a very interesting transition. Um, when I announced to my staff, uh, we had a big board table in a boardroom and everybody's sitting around there right after the first of the year and I said, you know, from this day forward, we're not booking any more weddings. 
you know, they just start falling out of the chair. They're laughing, rolled a paper, threw it at me. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm really serious. We're not doing any more weddings. And you could see the realization come across many of their faces is like, uh, we're losing our jobs, which most of them did. Because once we made the transition, I was down to just three people uh, from 14. But it, it was a situation that I really felt that I wanted to be a commercial photographer, work in the commercial arena. And we began that transition. And in that transition, we did a little bit of everything. So we were doing product work, we were doing location work, we were doing corporate headshots, we were doing annual reports. Um, uh, anything that you can think commercially that could be done, we were doing at that point in time. But I, I want to jump back for a minute uh, because part of your question was, what difference do you see today? Mm -hmm. And, and there are several things that are really, really key. Um, as I mentioned, it was a very commodity-based enterprise um, up to the point that, that I got in it and then exiting it. And then still for some years after where you're basically saying, here's what the wedding costs. You get a 24-page album and you get the parent albums and then we hopefully will sell you some extra prints and framing and things mm, like that. Mm -hmm. And today, it's such a different world with digital delivery. Um, I think it's interesting that a lot of the conversations I follow on uh, Western New York Wedding Chat are about people saying, gee, I want to start offering albums. And it's almost like they're going back old school where we were and, and looking, at, looking at those as additional sales items to build the, the total cost. Mm -hmm. When we booked a wedding, we had coverages that in our later years um, started as low as $750 and went to $1,200. And we were one of the very first photographers that required all money be paid up front mm. uh, before the wedding uh, date. And what we found is that whatever people spent coming in, they would spend on the additionals later. So if they booked a $1,200 coverage, we could almost certainly count on mm. a $2,400 total sale. If they booked $750, almost certainly a $750 sale. Hmm. And we worked under the, the sort of the, the, uh, the mentality that money spent is money forgotten. Hmm. And they'd come in with a $1,200 wedding budget and they'd spend it and they'd come back and, and, and spend it again. So from a, a business sales point of view, um, the, the profits that we did make were made on those additional sales. Hmm. And, um, and we allowed people to upgrade because we didn't lock them into an album size. We said you have, it, we used a program where we said it's $1,200 and you come back and you can buy $1,200 worth of prints. If you want to get, you know, a couple hundred four by fives or you want to get several 30 by 40s, we don't care. You can mix it up any way you want. Mm -hmm. and, and so it was an interesting aspect. And we, and we would discount the price down the more they bought per print. So they became natural secondary sales agents for us selling to their relatives and friends and mm -hmm. that because they knew if all their friends and relatives bought more prints, their price would come down, right. <laughs> but the total price would go up. So it was a very different type of marketing thing today. And I think that, that the wedding photographers today are getting more money, even adjusted for inflation, that on average than we were getting back in the day. Mm. But there's not as much opportunity uh, to push that sale up. And I think that's the primary thing. Then we also get into the issue um, that we'll talk about a little bit later, but it's very problematic because a lot of wedding photographers have rights issues on what mm. people are doing. Mm -hmm. And um, I see countless posts um, by people, are, 
are my bride and groom allowed to do that? Right. Can right. they just go ahead and, and have that those prints made? Can they do this and that? And the thing that needs to be included, and again, we'll talk a little bit more about that in depth, is the contractual language. Mm-hmm. In our day, it was very easy. It was difficult to copy photographs and right. make additional prints. Um, so they pretty much had to come to us. So we didn't have the copyright issue or the rights issue, certainly. There was no uh, computerization, social media, or anything like that. So sharing it meant having your friends come over and look at the album mm-hmm. at a party. Yeah. And that was basically how other people got to see the images. So it, it's really changed dramatically. Um, the other thing is that while I was one of the first ones trying to push out um, the idea of telling a story and shooting more frames at a wedding, and, and again, we were thought of as outrageous shooting 220 frames at a wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very exciting today um, with the advent of digital technology, how the wedding stories are being told. It certainly gives uh, photographers an awful lot more creative flexibility. And as a whole, looking back at what wedding photography was when I was in it in the late 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. compared to the aesthetic today that's mm-hmm. being done, uh, and both of you are excellent examples, uh, the work's off the charts. It's so much better. And uh, I mean, just so much more engaging, so much more exciting. Uh, to see the kind of work that's being produced today. Mm. Uh, So it's a scenario that that's a very positive side uh, compared to when I was in the industry. Mm -hmm. I Actually, part Mm. of the reason I asked the second part of that question is I heard you say something... Um, well, so my, the second part of the question was, is there anything in particular that sticks out as being drastically different or similar? And the part that's similar in particular, um, you know, one of the topics of conversation amongst wedding photographers, especially today in today's digital world, is there's so much competition and so many people are photographers. Um, and th- thinking about that point in particular, um, is there anything... How different do you see that as being today versus um, at the time that you were a wedding photographer? Do you think that there was that there's more competition now with the yeah. way digital is, or less, or similar? Where, where do you fall on that? Yeah, the the the, the community um, the community is certainly larger, uh, but the market base is larger too to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, the the country's growing. I remember when I was getting into business, boy, we were talking about America having 220 million people. And we're north of 300 million today. There are more people in this country. You have more consumers. Uh, but there are far more uh, photographers in every level. It's just not the wedding and portrait business than there were when I was there. And a part of that is the barrier for entry is so much lower today than it was. Um, when I was in school, and again, thinking in 1975 dollars, what they taught us, they said, if you want to open a studio and have a full service studio, you need a $100,000 investment. Uh, to get started for cameras and equipment and fixtures and your lab and everything else. Uh, today, that barrier for entry can be maybe $8,000 or even a little bit less. Uh, a couple of good Nikon or uh, Canon digital cameras, uh, a handful of uh, lenses, and a couple of flash units, and uh, get your business cards printed, and you can call yourself um, a wedding photographer. Mm. So, But it's always been there. Um, since I was a kid starting out, we'd hear all the other photographers complain about the competition, mm-hmm. the young guys coming in. Right. You would also get the, you know, these guys are, are charging next to nothing. I don't know how they'll stay in business. Mm-hmm. The arguments are exactly the right. same. Right, and so that, that part there, that, that there is such similarity there, I feel yeah. like it might be a broader base, but it's still the same conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the one is in 1975, the country is in a recession. Everybody's saying, well, the economy's terrible, the economy's terrible. What do you hear today? The economy's terrible, the economy's <laughs> terrible. You know, people don't have the money to spend. 
So the, the, the stories are exactly the same um, as they were. And what makes somebody successful that stands out, um, talent is, is certainly important, but I think the most important uh, trait uh, for a successful photographer is persistence. You just have to stay at it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, the key element. I've seen many, many, many photographers, and while I was teaching at Villa Maria, you would see students come out, they'd go at it for maybe six months to a year, and just when it's about ready to break for them, they'd throw up their hands and say, I think I made a mistake, I, I, this isn't for me, I'm gonna go do somewhere else, so they mm-hmm. quit. Mm-hmm. And the persistence, the dogged persistence in belief in yourself is, is the difference. Um, talent helps, but I've seen some persistent, dogged photographers who have modest talent <laughs> do very well, and on the other side, I've seen some very gifted image makers who don't have the persistence or don't have the personality or business skills fall by the wayside. And I, w- I was trying to do a, a thing in my head earlier this year, how many photographers I've seen come and go mm-hmm. since I've been in business over 40 years. It's gotta be over 100 in this city mm-hmm. that I've known mm-hmm. who are, are gone or out of the business. Yeah. Wow. So it's a, it's a scenario that um, it's a tough business, it's a competitive business, but if you talk to the guy doing auto repair, or you talk to the florist shop, or you talk to the, the hair salon, they'll tell you the same stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a business issue. You have to be competitive. You have mm-hmm. to have something. But I think, looking on another similarity, the, the same thing um, in gaining clients and, and booking weddings is that it really is a matter of trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certain couples that are looking and price is the primary objective. Uh, they're generally younger or they just don't have the financial resources and that's a reality that established photographers find hard to get around. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're really the people that should be going to the, the new folks and that. But the trust issue is, is really important and I, I think that many photographers find that the bulk of their work comes from word of mouth referral mm-hmm. oftentimes from people that may have been actually at the wedding and saw the couple work mm-hmm. or saw the photographer work with the couple yep. and then saw the photographs and i think that when getting in uh, quality photography certainly plays an impact but i think finding comfort level with that photographer from the couple's point of view and and feeling confident is the primary thing that is is the same as it was then because we we really strove to make sure that that we were comfortable with them they were comfortable with us that it would be a good mix because the reality is on the wedding day the couple spends no more time with anybody than the wedding photographer Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the wedding photographer can make or break the day on how invasive um, or disruptive they are in the the normal flow so that absolutely having that comfort level Mm -hmm. uh, with the couple is is primarily important but I think a lot of photographers will stress the quality of their photography and I think that they sometimes miss the boat about the human interaction Mm -hmm. and the fact that these people are committing a significant amount of money Mm -hmm. on a nebulous service that they haven't seen yet they don't know how it's going to turn out so it's Mm -hmm. all about trust there Excellent. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, so we're going to kind of shift gears now into on the second topic of our of our show, which is a number of questions, actually. But uh, so we're just going to shift. And uh, Jim, I'm going to ask you uh, for our listeners, um, which is pr- are primarily wedding photographers. Uh, what is ASMP, American Society of Media Photographers, and how did you get involved over the years? Well, um, 
first how I got involved. Um, as we made the transition into commercial photography, it was a rough transition. We gave up 85% of our cash flow, and that caused um, significant financial distress. And um, I was out there trying to get work at any cost, trying to get work any way I could. And mind you, this is before internet. Yes. And it was a situation that, that uh, by 1985, I felt that um, things just weren't going well. Uh, it was always a financial struggle. I wasn't getting the kind of work I wanted. And I had an assistant that worked for me, so, uh, a travel lifestyle photographer that lives in the area still, David Noyes. And Dave was a member of ASMP. He had joined as a student at RIT. And he said, you may want to check out these ASMP guys. So I dutifully went out, bought their business practices book, which was a little thin um, blue-colored book. And I read through it, and I said, these guys seem pretty smart. <laughs> I'm just going to do everything they say in this book, exactly the way they say to do it in running a business and see what happens. Well, that was a transition point. So I joined ASMP, um, a, a very happenstance meeting with two other photographers in Rochester who were also both ASMP members, and we just happened to sit in the same row at a screening for a multimedia presentation, and we started chatting, and we got around to ASMP and said, you know, maybe we should form a chapter in Western New York. Mm -hmm. And so we found out how many photographers were independent ASMP members here in the Western New York area, got a number of other people. Once we got to 25, we were able to start a chapter. And I stayed in a volunteer position, either on the local level or on the national level from 1986 all the way to 2012 and now I'm just a member so I've, I've, I've retired from my volunteer positions and every volunteer position you can imagine with an ASMP I've had it from the local level all the way to the top at national being president wow. but when I joined ASMP you basically had ASMP and the PP of A and ASMP was for commercial photographers PP of A was for portrait and wedding photographers they were very divided. You would just not find a wedding photographer inside of ASMP because they actually didn't qualify for membership at the time under the old membership guidelines. And ASMP originally stood for the American Society of Magazine Photographers. Mm. And it was changed in the 80s to the American Society of Media Photographers. But same thing in PP of A, you found primarily portrait and wedding photographers. And both those trade associations catered to their members and their members' needs but did it in a very different way. And, and, and today it's still, there's somewhat of a divide. And in ASMP, educationally and advocacy-wise, everything's concerned about the business. Business, marketing, running the business, running a successful business, nothing about the technique, hmm. nothing about how to do mm -hmm. photography. Mm -hmm. PP of A, still with their, their, their long culture is, and, and a very successful culture, is very much geared toward technique. Mm. They do have some business, they, they have really moved more in later years about marketing work mm -hmm. and, and branding and, and, and important aspects there, but they're not so much about the nuts and bolts of the business side. They do have a commercial division, um, but it's fairly small and it's primarily populated with wedding and portrait photographers that are doing some commercial work. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got that divide, but what's happened is, as the industry changed and the business models changed and digital photography accelerated a lot of those changes, we started seeing um, a homogenous mixing. There was no longer the 
dedicated portrait wedding photographer, the dedicated commercial photographer. Mm. We knew things changed when you started seeing National Geographic photographers shooting weddings. Mm. And we see wedding photographers who are very talented doing lifestyle work, mm-hmm. moving into lifestyle and fashion and things like that. So there's been this cross-pollination of both organizations. And I think that ASMP membership can be beneficial to a portrait wedding photographer because of its strengths on the contractual side, on the business side, on the marketing side, licensing, copyright issues, things like that, that PP of A is not as strong as. Mm. Now, that's not saying pick one or the other. There's no reason not to belong to both. Mm-hmm. But it's it, one, one of the things that has always been a problem and is that the portrait wedding market is still to some degree a consumer market, uh, business to consumer marketing, still somewhat of a commodity mm. uh, type of approach in its pricing and uh, how it relates to consumers versus a licensing model on the commercial side um, that is not buying a product per se, but buying a license or licensing the rights to photographs. Yeah, I think you know one of the main reasons uh, that, that comes up and I think that is super important to have you on this podcast and you know when we get into some of these mm-hmm. questions with where we're going is that as wedding photographers we still get commercial inquiries like mm-hmm. we still get them if you're somewhat successful if you have clients that are you know that have businesses and these kinds of things we get these commercial inquiries and for wedding photographers when we're not as familiar with how to license an image and what mm-hmm. usage is. I think all of us kind of freak out a little bit <laughs> about like what we're gonna, what what to do and how to price and how what you know all of these different things. So the conversation here, I think, is very important, and this is where people, our listeners, should be listening in with where we're going in these next few questions here, because these are the things that um, that that we need to be aware of as professionals, regardless of. Um, you know, if, if we consider ourselves just wedding photographers, because we're still going to get those commercial inquiries come up from time to time. And if mm-hmm. we don't know how to respond to that and how to, um, you know, price that and these kinds of things, then we're actually um, hurting the market for everybody, essentially. And, and so this is an important conversation going forward here. And I just kind of I wanted to mention that. So, yeah, well, and that's yeah. an important um, point, because many of the many of the people that um, make that transition that start as portrait wedding photographers without that background, they'll go into a commercial realm and they'll tremendously underprice a project, not because they're stupid or not because they're trying to lowball to get the job. Mm-hmm. They just don't know where the market is right. because they haven't been shown what the market is. They don't have experience there. So that cross membership can help. It, 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 it dates back and it, it's interesting because it's a little bit different again today in the digital environment mm-hmm. that we have now, but it was interesting because where it, it became painfully obvious um, through the 80s, you'd have a wedding photographer that was still in that commodity selling prints, and they would do a portrait session, let's say, and then they would hope to make a significant amount of money on selling prints because that's where their profit was. Mm-hmm. And they get a commercial client said, gee, I just need you to shoot 35 millimeter slides. We're going to drop them into an AV show. Mm-hmm. And they're like, but, but, but I don't have anything to sell if I'm just <laughs> shooting the role of film and giving you the slides. And that all of a sudden there'd be the, the deer in the headlights look is how do I price this job? Right. Because I was only going to charge them 50 bucks to take the pictures, but now I don't make any money to get my sale up to three or four or five hundred dollars. And, and today, to some degree, um, it's the same because we we see young photographers that uh, will compete against a job that I may have bid at three thousand dollars. And my client comes back. So well, this guy said he's going to do it for four hundred bucks. 
Hmm. And they think, well, it's going to take a couple hours. I'm making 150 bucks an hour. And they run this, these ideas through their head, but don't realize that the client normally pays $3,000 right. or something like that. Mm-hmm. So being involved in something like ASMP helps that information flow. And ASMP has been very good. If you go to their website, ASMP.org, um, on the front end, um, they have a uh, section that is for non-members of educational material, and then they have a more detailed section for members only. Mm-hmm. But the plethora of information that's available to non-members is, is absolutely breathtaking mm-hmm. how much is out there. So even if you're not a member, go to ASMP.org, look over there for business resources, look for the tutorials, uh, look for the paperwork share, look for those different things that will give you advice on, on those particular topics. And we will have mm-hmm. a few of those uh, links that Jim did provide mm-hmm. in the show notes. So those will be uh, in the show notes and you should definitely take a look at those, um, you know, uh, either while, we're, while you're listening to the podcast here or following the podcast, because uh, they are very good links. And sometimes, you know, I think, uh, you, you know, we might not want to take that time to go, <laughs> to go and read through some of that stuff, these kinds of things, but it is important as professionals it's literally some of these things are only like a 15 minute read on, you know, how to how to price and you kind of go through the different sections there. And it's it's fantastic quality stuff that, that we should kind of pay attention to because it, it can help us when these things come up. Uh, that said, um, we're going to my, my next question for you, which is. Uh, what is copyright and why is that important? <laughs> that's, that's a bigger question, you know, to say <laughs> what's copyright, right? But what is copyright? We're for the next six hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what is copyright and why is it important for wedding photographers? Why would it or why could it be important for wedding photographers to register their images? So even taking that conversation aside of sometimes you get commercial inquiries, even if you don't get commercial inquiries and you were you just as wedding photographers, why might it be important for us to register our images? Well, the primary thing is that um, under the current laws today that have been in effect since 1978, the moment a photographer creates the image, and in in the parlance of the the law, when they fix it to a tangible media, they own the copyright. It's instantaneous, it's automatic, nothing has to be done. However, if you want to seek legal recourse in the case of an infringement, the images must be registered. And ideally, if they're registered before the infringement takes place, it opens up a number of avenues of of legal remedies that are not available if you register after the infringement takes place. Mm -hmm. And primarily, if and and, and putting this in, in sort of the simplest terms to think about, is if you do not register and your image is infringed, you find it and you want to now try to put some legal muscle behind reaching a settlement, um, if you want to go the court route, there's two obstacles. One is it's very, very expensive. Uh, Copyright's a federal law. It has to be adjudicated in a federal court. You can't go to small claims court or Mm. city court to Mm. file a copyright claim. You have to Mm. go to federal court. And today, just to get the briefs filed, to get in the court door and get it set on the docket, mm. costs about $15,000 to get mm. started. Mm. And it can go into the six-figure range very quickly. Mm. Now, if you have not registered and you're infringed, you are eligible to make, get a, 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 a stop on the use of the image. If something was printed, you can um, seize the printed copies. You can get actual damages, and you can get um, profits from that the, the infringer may have gained off your images. 
Profits are extraordinarily difficult to prove. The other aspect that's difficult to prove is actual damages, because actual damages can be what you would have been paid for the use of that image. Mm -hmm. And let's assume that it's on a website. Somebody lifted your image off a blog and put it on their website. You're looking somewhere between $250 and $600, perhaps, for that use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, the way that I stated it, if you can only get $600 in recovery, but you have to spend $15,000 to get in the door, okay. one of two things exists. Mm -hmm. Either you're already independently wealthy and don't care, or you're really, really, really pissed off right. that you wouldn't spend fifteen thousand dollars to recover six hundred. And that's and that's yeah. if you registered the image. If you did not. Oh, if, if you, you did, did not. not. Okay. Now, okay. so actual damages can also be that you've lost the ability to exclusively license the image. Other people may not want to use the image because it's already been out there in publication, whether it's electronic or traditional print form. That's difficult to prove as well. That's uh, that's a hard nut to crack. Uh, so most attorneys, if you have not registered the images, won't even touch your case. Mm. They, because there's no possible good outcome, or there, the chance of a possible outcome is so rare. Now, if you register prior to an infringement and you go to court, you also can get statutory damages, and those statutory damages can range from $600 to $30,000 per infringement on most infringement cases. However, if you can prove willful infringement, then that award can go as high as 150,000. Mm. And, and the word may and can is very important because many photographers believe when they read this that it's automatic. You get infringed, you get $150,000. <laughs> I just hit the photo lock, you know, lottery. <laughs> That's not the case at all. That you might get $600. It's gonna depend on how the judge and or jury hearing the case evaluates it. But the big stick is that the judge may award, in the case if you prevail, all legal and court costs. And, some, and, and I shouldn't say sometimes, many times, that exceeds the damage award. Mm. So the infringer is stuck on the hook. So by registering your copyright, you have this big stick you can hold over someone's head mm. to reach a negotiation, to reach settlement without going to court. Right. Um, I've been at this 40 years. I've been infringed hundreds of times. I've never seen the inside of a courtroom except to photograph one. Mm. I've never sued anybody. I've never had to go to court. Mm -hmm. But I've always collected simply mm -hmm. because yeah. I had the registration. Yeah, you have yeah. that registration, and, saying, and then you send that invoice, right? You, yeah. you say, hey, I've, I've got copyright. Here's, here's an invoice. This is what I charge for that image. And, and, if, and then when they take that to their lawyers, essentially, they say, hey, he's got copyright, but we better pay this bill. Yeah, and, and right? I think that one thing I'll um, clarify um, from a legal perspective is the one thing that a competent copyright attorney will tell you. And I'm gonna say copyright attorney, not IP attorney, because you'll see a lot of uh, attorneys that are well-versed in trademark and patent law, mm. and they'll say we do copyright also. It's a very, very different law. Different branches of government. There's the Patent and Trademark Office, the Copyright Office is part of the Library of Congress. They're very separate, so you want a copyright attorney if you go forward. But what most copyright attorneys will advise you is don't offer a settlement, let them handle it, because they're gonna get more money. And the problem mm -hmm. is that if you go in and say, I'm sending you an invoice for $1,200 for this unauthorized use, you've now told a potential mm -hmm. judge and jury mm -hmm. that that image is worth $1,200. And again, mm -hmm. if you have to spend 15 to get in and you're only gonna get 1,200, you've just shot yourself in the foot. Mm -hmm. um, throwing that caution to the wind, I will often just do just that. I'll say, look, you probably didn't realize that you couldn't do this, 
Mm-hmm. And this is what we would have charged had you come to us. I'm happy to give you a retroactive license for mm-hmm. the on-use part and a license to continue to use the image forward. And in most cases, we get, um, you know, quick settlements. Yeah. We do get pushback once in a while. If we get pushback, basically what I do is I'll fax over or now scan an email, a copy of the registration certificate. And I said, I think you need to talk to a copyright attorney, tell them the facts that I've laid out for you and ask them what you should do. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, the copyright attorney say, pay him, yeah, yeah. please pay him yeah. because it's going to get very expensive very quickly. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the idea for a wedding photographer, here's where it gets interesting is that the problem where wedding photographers can get infringed is people using social media to put their images out. And then that image being picked up by somebody else and infringed by a third, fourth, or fifth party, way unrelated to the original uh, couple. Mm-hmm. And it's a situation that if you don't register and then you find the infringement, there's very little you can do. You can throw a tantrum and stamp your feet and demand payment and everything. But if you've got a savvy infringer that knows that most photographers don't register their work, there's very little that you can actually do. But if you do register, you again, you have that big stick. And you find that um, even the savvy infringers that infringe with general impunity, as soon as they know the copyright is registered, it's a scenario that at that point they will pony up pretty quick because they know how far that can escalate. Because for you to file the briefs for 15000 to get in, for them to get a defense attorney and get in there, same kind of thing. So uh, wedding photographers uh, listening uh, to this podcast right now, um, registering isn't as bad as you might think. And uh, but <laughs> well, so, which leads me into my next question here. Uh, so, so Jim, um, how does somebody register their images with a copyright office? And then, and then are there any good online resources? Actually, that part of the question, there are some good online resources. You can take a look at the show notes because link, uh, Jim already provided us with a link here. But how does somebody uh, you know, go about registering their images with the Copyright Office? Um, how does yeah, if, you, if you just wander onto the Copyright Office website and try to figure out how to register your work, um, <laughs> after six or seven hours and your gla- eyes are glassed <laughs> over and you need a couple of glasses of scotch, it's going to be a situation where you say, this is crazy, I can't do it. It appears very tough at first. There's a lot of legal language that the Copyright Office puts out there because they're a government agency, they're required to do that. And the reality is, it's not that difficult. There's basically three different parts. You have to fill out, and and today, I guess precursoring that, today it's wonderful because you can go online Mm -hmm. and do it all Mm -hmm. online. And once you've done it a couple of times, I register every other month all of my images, and it takes, on a bad day, 15 minutes to do the registration for two months' worth of work. But basically, the three parts are you have to fill out the registration form. It's going to ask a number of questions, a little bit about the images, uh, giving the, the, the collection of images a title, uh, when they were created, if you're registering unpublished, if they're published images, when they were published, and then basically contact information. Um, and you fill all that out, and you can actually even save that as a template, so next time you just click open your template and start the next registration. Then, um, as with most things in the government, you have to pay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The payment process is next, and it's government PayPal, basically. You put in your credit card number, they debit your account for $55, and, and then you go on to the third phase, which is actually registering the images, uploading the images. Because under the copyright law, um, 
there's a requirement to have a copy of every image that's being registered mm. in the collection. And there's a couple things about that. And people ask, well, why do you have to do that? Why can't you just give a list? And the Copyright Office, being part of the Library of Congress, their mission is to collect the total creative output of the United States under one roof. And so in the law, it requires submission of the copyrightable works to go into that collection. Now, when you think about the Copyright Office, I always think about, if you think about the very last scene in the first Indiana Jones movie, <laughs> and you've got the giant room where they're putting that crate with the Ark of the Covenant, and there's about 40 million other crates just like that, mm -hmm. I envisioned that that was photographed in the Copyright Office, <laughs> where they, or the Library of Congress, where they just have to store everything. And that, yeah. but so you're required to do it. Um, and oftentimes, interestingly, is getting that collection together to upload um, is the biggest stumbling point, um, or at least the second biggest stumbling point. The, um, the way to overcome this is basically make it part of your workflow. Mm -hmm. So when you ingest your images and you begin your editing process, um, you add your metadata and, and you do some of your global corrections, what you can do at that time is just use image processor um, or a batch process mode in Photoshop and take all of your raw files with your metadata and base corrections and export them as 600 by 600 wide, 600 by 600 pixel wide mm -hmm. JPEGs, mm -hmm. compressed mm -hmm. down like at seven. Mm -hmm. So they're very small. And you put those in a folder labeled your copyright folder. Yeah. Yeah, the, and at the, the end of the month, when, or the end of two months or end of three months when you go to register, mm -hmm. all your images are now in that one part, and it was just part of your workflow yeah. of ingesting images. And Yeah, that's and, the important point, I think, here, uh, is that you can register multiple bat groups of images all at once. So you don't have to register each image individually. You can, you can put in, you know, like Jim's talking about, every month he'll register mm -hmm. a bunch of images and um, you know, submit them online to the online copyright office after a while. If you get quick at it, like Jim's saying, you can do like 15 minutes. And then- Well, there's my, um, yeah, there was my question of, I mean, he says he takes his month of images mm -hmm. and then, I mean, for a wedding photographer, I mean, I can take up to 10,000 images in one month. Right. Now, do, should I submit everything that I take or should I just take like my portfolio pieces that are gonna go up online and be shared on social media, on the blog? That, that's a good question, and, 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 and it gets into a, a little deeper issue that we can cover in a minute, but um, in the old days, um, if your images were in a file cabinet drawer and no one was seeing them, they weren't out distributed to clients with physical copies, mm -hmm. they're not going to be infringed. Mm -hmm. There's no point mm -hmm. in registering them, and the stuff that you sent out to clients um, ideally should have been registered. Today, it's a little different. Um, if you have something you know that's just never going to be seen or it's just going to be stuck in the archive somewhere, don't register it uh, because if it's stuck on your hard drive and it's not going out anywhere, it's not on social media, it's not yeah. delivered to a client, mm -hmm. the likelihood of it being infringed is pretty minimal. Okay. So you don't have to worry as much. But it's a, a scenario that um, can you register now? To, to clarify something before, and, and this will get to other questions, but it's important, you can do groups of registration in, in an unpublished images. Yes. You can register any amount. <laughs> the, the, they yeah, don't okay. care. <laughs> However, there's been a couple goofy court cases uh, um, over the last few years where people have registered thousands and thousands of images, and they make an award 
And, and these are crazy courts, and this is why you never want to be in court anyway, because <laughs> even though you're, you've got a rock-solid case, once you get in front of a judge and a jury, it can go out the window in a hurry. And at ASMP, we saw many cases just, you sit there and pull your hair out and go, they can't have possibly lost, or this could not have possibly happened, but if a judge rules it, that's it. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is they, they would, they, there were a couple cases where they granted an award, and a significant award like, um, like $10,000 for the infringement, let's say, and they said, but you had 2,000 images in that registration that makes each image worth $50. So your award for the two images were infringed is 100 bucks. Oh, no. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. Yeah. So ASMP and the Copyright Office have uh, suggested that you don't register 10,000 at a time, <laughs> keep it to a little bit more reasonable level, and, and I'll address that with wedding photographers in a moment. But um, the other thing that I do, and this was a former um, attorney at the Copyright Office, when I register, I use two titles. So I'll say assignment and personal photographs created by James Cavanaugh in December 2015. And my alternate title on the, I put on the registration is 2,875 photographs created on 32 projects by James Cavanaugh mm, during mm -hmm. the month of December 2000. This is a little side note because of that one because case. Because I'm saying yeah. these are individual <laughs> images. And that's not, you won't read that in the requirements. This is just one of the, the, the folks at the Copyright Office who's now an independent copyright attorney. And um, he suggested it to me and said, you know, I think this gives you cover under these crazy rulings. But you do want to keep it to maybe a little bit more manageable amount. Now, in published work, it's a much more complex world, a much more uh, complex set of rules, um, and there's multiple rules. So um, this, this idea of published versus unpublished work is a big deal with, with when you register your copyright with the Copyright Office. It's very confusing if this is the first time that you're ever hearing it. And then there's even the question of what is published versus what is not published. And there is even some confusion because I do register my images, you know, a couple times a year. I should do it more. Mm -hmm. it's, by the way, it's like 35 bucks, you know, per, per, the, per time that you... 55 now. Oh, it's 55 now, so yep. it's gone up. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, $55 per each time that you register register your images and you know I do it about a couple times a year as a wedding photographer and I will take a group of you know you know whatever images that I think are important that that if I see on a billboard somewhere I, I would rather not see on a billboard you know by some company because you never know you, yeah and, you never know um, especially with I mean if, if we take a shot of a venue you know they, they right. might really want an image and a bride just happens to email them because you know she thinks she wants the attention because they, they used her wedding mm -hmm. um, but for you that's your image and right. you could possibly you know make money off of that right so, and, and yeah, or should or like should that. have been able to and it mm -hmm. was not fair use to begin with but uh, so, well, let me jump back to the, yeah, the, sure. this, yeah, this, sure, this sure. other idea yep. on the um, published versus unpublished. Unpublished, um, under the regulations as they currently stand, you can also register groups of published images together, but they have to be images that were published in the same unit of publication. Mm. That's the, the language. What does that mean? We're not sure. We know a book, yes, a magazine, a newspaper a calendar, a promotional piece that you send out, that's the same unit of publication. But once we get into the electronic world, it becomes less clear. Is, are all your images on the website a single unit of publication? If you ask the chief counsel for the Copyright Office, they'll probably say, it depends. Hmm. Uh, we don't know, because what, what has happened is we're working on a copyright law that was written in 1976 and put into effect in 1978 
before there were dreams of computers or internet or <laughs> social media or anything. Mm -hmm. And so the way we interpret what was written in that original law is through um, legal precedents, what the courts have decided. The courts are deciding what does this mean. And it's, it's very confusing because the various federal court districts decide differently. So there's, a, there's no clear answer. But the, um, the Copyright Office has a test program where you can register groups of unrelated published images. I think there's a maximum of 750 images on that, but you're supposed to get permission from the Copyright Office before you complete the registration, just to let them know, and you can make notes in the remarks field. One of the differences that's interesting is that, and it's again, it's the language that lawyers can love, mm. is when you register unpublished images, one of the first questions on the application is, year of creation, mm. not year of publication, I think it's year of creation. So if you created it this year, 2015, mm. you're all set. When you're registering groups of published images, it'll ask date of first publication. Mm. And you have to give a specific date. And unfortunately, on the Copyright Office form, there is one date, like December 1st, 2015. Mm. You can't put a range of dates. So they do have a notes field in the back that if you're doing these unrelated images. The only other caveat is that in the groups of published images, they must be from the same calendar year, published mm. in the same calendar year. Mm. Not created, but published in the same calendar year. So there's that difference. Now, people have asked, well, why doesn't the Copyright Law or the Copyright Office just change it? It's crazy, it's outdated. Mm -hmm. Copyright Office can set regulations on how to do things, but they can't set regulations on what you must do. That's actually in the law, and a change there has to come by a change in Congress. So you've got to get the House, the Senate to agree on it, you know, vote on it, <laughs> vote on a compromise bill, and yeah. then send it off to the president for signature. Mm -hmm. And the way things are going in Washington these days, mm. copyright's pretty low down the, mm -hmm. the food chain on mm -hmm. importance that they can sit there and bicker and argue about. Right, so right. it's very tough. Now, there are committees that are working and subcommittees that are working in Congress right now to upgrade and change the copyright mm -hmm. law. Mm -hmm. The Register of Copyrights, Maria Plante, has called for change in the copyright law. So the Copyright Office is, is very favorable to photographers' concerns and uh, the difficulties they face in registration. Um, the Register of Copyrights, uh, Maria Plante, um, is very understanding. She, she knows what we're faced with. ASMP has an excellent relationship with the Copyright Office. Um, I've had the good fortune to even testify for House subcommittees in Washington on copyright issues. Mm. And they're, they're very responsive. As a little side note, too, you're, we're dealing with a government agency. Their hands are somewhat tied on how they can do things. Um, but I think one of the things that most photographers find when they have to do this is when they have to contact the Copyright Office, how incredibly responsive they are. It's a scenario where one of my assistants was getting registered, ready to register work, hadn't registered in a long time. His login was no longer valid, and I said, call the copyright office. And he goes, want to be on hold for a week and then mm -hmm. not get an answer for a month? I said, no, call him and see what happens. Two or three rings, the phone's picked up. Um, the, the fellow, the, the examiner at the copyright office says, how can I help you? He explains the problem. He goes, well, let me get in there and fix this up for you, and got everything done. And five minutes later, my assistant's off the phone. Mm -hmm and his problem was solved. Mm. So it, it's, it's really, a, it's a small agency. It's, it's not like Homeland Security or TSA. <laughs> um, the people there are really concerned. Their job is to get registration, to make 
it easier for people to register. Mm -hmm. But their hands are tied by regulations that are actually in the law. Mm -hmm. So it can be a little bit tough. Yeah, I just want to make it uh, clear to listeners that it sounds very difficult uh, to register your images, and it kind of is with this publish-unpublish business, and, and, you know, there's a lot of lingo, but, it's, but if you can literally just create an account, you get online, and you submit your images, you can figure it out. You can figure this out, and there are resources. One of the resources that Jim provided, take a look at the show notes, and, you know, watch it. There's, I think there's a five-minute video by somebody from ASMP basically talking you through how to go onto the website and just, and just go through and register your images. It's not that bad. It's a little complicated because, mm-hmm. of, because of the law and everything that we're talking about here, but it's not as bad as you might think that it is. And I just want to bring that up because it's just a matter of knowing what images you want to register, going online, and then, and then going through the process. It's not... Yeah, the, so. the, the, the first one or two times that you go through it, it may take you an hour or a little bit longer uh, because the website is not user-friendly. Um, the Copyright Office does not have its own IT staff. They have to subcontract everything out. And like many government things, it was a website built by the lowest bidder. It's actually <laughs> accounting software that was retasked to be this registration uh, <laughs> stuff. So it doesn't make sense. And some of the buttons and the way they're laid out, some of the things you think you click on kick you right out of the registration in that. So ASMP has a tutorial, and you can go to asmp.org slash copyright, and there's a tutorial that walks you through page by page. Mm. So you can see what you need to do. Um, There's two buttons that are, um, are very important. And, the, and I will say the continue button is your friend and the save as me is your friend or add me rather add me as your friend because there's an add me button for when you're filling in who to contact, who to send the certificate to, who to negotiate licenses with. Um, there are certain things that you'll find. They're just different places on the page. Um, but the ASMP tutorial is very good because it really does walk you through. There were a couple little recent changes. So the very first one or two pages of the registration, which are just three questions, are not on the ASMP tutorial, but they're mm-hmm. pretty self-evident, mm-hmm. um, and you should be able to walk through. But watch that and have that open in your computer so you can walk yourself through each phase of it. Once you've done it a couple of times, most people after they've done it twice, third time, maybe 15, 20 minutes after that, 10 minutes, mm-hmm. as long as you have all your images assembled beforehand that we talked about earlier. Okay, Jim, we have uh, one more question here for you. <laughs> And uh, the question is basically around uh, usage license. And, you know, as wedding photographers, we're not as familiar with writing those. So, actually, we're not as familiar with, number one, coming up with what usage should be. How do we price usage for how does that happen, right? Mm-hmm. And, but then also, how do you actually write the, uh, a usage license? Or what does that contain? How does the end client receive a usage license? Or in what way do, do we present that to them? Because I think those are important questions that, that uh, wedding photographers in particular don't know the answer to, especially um, for those of us that are, that are newer at this. So well, uh, usage license, how do, we, how do we write it? How do, we de- how do we determine what that usage price should be? Per well, let's, let's define it first. And I think um, thinking about it in a in a little bit more clear term makes sense. Basically, um, in the most crude sense, you're charging what the market will bear. But the reality sense is that you're charging based on value. And in the old days, um, before I got in, and, and it was just really phasing out when I got in, if you were working on an advertising, or a, uh, especially an advertising project, the photographer's fee traditionally was about 10% of the, 
of the media buy. Hmm. So if there was a $200,000 ad buy, the photographer got $20,000. If there was a $2 million ad buy, the photographer got $200,000. It was pretty cut rate. Those days are long gone. But what you're really doing is charging by the value, and we call it usage because as the use of the photograph, the distribution, the impact of the photograph spreads in a commercial sense, the value should go up. It's not any different than thinking about the fact if you buy a quarter page ad in a local newspaper versus a full page ad in a major magazine. The price is much higher. The, the, the ad looks the same, the type is the same, the layout's the same, but they're paying significantly more because of the higher circulation, the higher reach, the higher penetration, and the higher effectiveness. Same reason that you can buy a local ad on TV um, off primetime for a few hundred dollars, but it's $2 million for a Super Bowl ad. Mm you're paying for the value. So the idea of usage or, and, and, and licensing the work, um, they're different things, but they're interrelated. The license is, as a copyright owner, you control the copy, the distribution, the derivative works, and any other kind of uh, performance of, of your work. So what you, somebody that wants to use your work has to get a license from you hmm. to be able to do it. And we'll talk in a minute how to spell that out. On the other side, usage f f uh, figures into how do I set my fee. And to a, there are resources out there. What a lot of photographers are doing today, they just go to some of the big stock agencies and register and say, if it was a stock photograph, what would they pay to use this in this hmm. particular use? Is it a magazine ad? Is it an in-store display? Is it a, a transit poster on the side of a bus? Is it a billboard in mm. 30 different cities? Mm. And they look at Getty or Corbis and say, what would the fee be to license the stock image? And that gives them an idea. Mm -hmm. There's a other online, well, it's not actually online, it's a software source called PhotoQuote. Um, there are other resources online that help you through that process like Blinkbid, which is an invoicing system. Mm -hmm and they can help you with it. But talking to other photographers is probably the most important thing, and, and that goes back to why should you belong to ASMP, PPFA, WPPI, anything, is to have that peer support to go to somebody to ask. Now, the only thing I'll say is photographers lie. Mm. And, <laughs> and if you ask a photographer generally about a job, they're gonna tell you about their biggest job they've ever had or that once-in-a-lifetime moment, and they're gonna tell you this. <laughs> And you have to sort of factor that in. But if you belong to a national association, you wind up, if you go to the conferences and such, you'll wind up having friends in different parts of the country. So you can call Barbara in Florida, Florida or John out in, in California and say, hey, I've got this job. I'm not quite sure if I'm on the mark here pricing. And you know they do similar work. How would you price it? And since they're not in a directly competitive market with you in your, mm -hmm. in your local area, you're likely to get maybe a little more honest answer than hanging out with the guys at the bar after a, an ASMP meeting and saying, hey, what do you charge for this? And um, so you do have to take it with a grain of salt, but that's a big help. But basically, think about the, the, the fee for the usage portion as the value to the client. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting story to show that a bigger client doesn't always translate to a larger usage fee. Um, Stock agent was telling a story of how he had one image, pastoral, um, sort of like farm scene, and in one week he licensed it to a small manufacturer that made 3,000 brochures, and he licensed it to American Express 
that sent out one and a quarter million um, direct mail pieces with the image on it. Hmm. And he said, who paid more? Everybody puts up their hands and says, well, American Express. He says, no, American Express paid a thousand bucks. The little manufacturer paid $10,000. And the reason is the little manufacturer who made some kind of farm equipment was reaching out to 3,000 people worldwide who might buy his product. He was saturating the known market for whatever it was they were making. The brochure was everything to his company. That was extraordinarily valuable. American Express sends out 200 million pieces a month. It was a test mailing, one and a quarter million. It wasn't a, it wasn't a blip on the radar. They, it had no value to them other than to see which image tested best. And they send out multiple mailers mm. with different images on to see the test before they sent out the big mailing. So it's not always the big company. Sometimes the small company, the image will be extraordinarily important. Also figuring into the usage is not only how it's used and where it's used, but how long it's used. Hmm. Is it something that you're going to limit to use for one insertion in a magazine? Are you going to limit it for six months on a website or two years? Or are you going to give them perpetual use mm -hmm. of the images? And all those things you can do. So you can, that goes back to the license. And you can license any way that you want. You can license extraordinarily specifically. This is for a one-time insertion in a quarter-page ad in Business First in the December 5th edition. Hmm. And you can be that narrow-focused. Or you can say, um, we give you two years of marketing use and hmm. be that vague. The problem is, when you start using vague terms, the people on the other side may interpret, well, I ran an ad in Time Magazine. That, that's marketing. Right. No, it's advertising and that. So you should be as clear as possible. Mm -hmm. um, we had a case, just to show you how it, it can be kind of silly and bite you, um, we had licensed an image for Business First, a quarter page. And back when we did this, it was $250 mm. to license it for each of the two insertions, $500. They called me back, and I was in the middle of a number of things. And I got them on the phone, and I, I, I really had to get off the phone. And they, and they said, we want to run it again in Business First. I said, you're just going to run it ad again in Business First? I go, yeah. I go, another 250 bucks, just like the last time. Well, Business First comes out two weeks later. And instead of the quarter page black and white on the inside, now it's a full color, oh, full uh. page back page <laughs> uh. of the paper. Mm -hmm. and, and that should have been probably closer to about $1,500. So I looked at the license I wrote, one additional insertion in business first. Mm. They did exactly what I told them they could do. I had yeah. no restriction yeah. saying yeah. it's quarter page or it's color or yeah. not color. Mm -hmm. So in writing the license, you should be as specific as possible of where you want it used. Mm -hmm. And there was, an, on, uh, on the wedding chat group uh, this past week, there was an interesting um, question about, do I have to tell them what they can't do hmm. with an image? Because the a couple had done something with some wedding photographs, and she apparently had not intended for them to do that. Mm -hmm. And I said, it's an interesting dichotomy, because in your license, under the copyright law, you grant specific rights. Mm -hmm. And you can add to the end of your license all other rights reserved mm -hmm. uh, for stronger legal meaning, but you don't have to tell them what they can't do because you're, all you're doing is saying what you can do with the images. Mm -hmm. Now, from a practical point of view, you should probably most them. of your clients are not <laughs> copyright experts yeah, by any uh -huh. stretch and, and versed in the, in the nuances of the law. So if you really don't want them to do something, you should spell that out. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't put these on social media or you can't 
um, offer these for sale, or you can't make prints that or you give out to your friends. Or put that in, in the contract yeah. itself, mm-hmm. you know, at least yeah. for us as far as the retail stuff goes. And, and where should it be? It, it should probably be um, in the commercial world, it should be on your estimate. Mm-hmm. So you're telling them, basically on the front of the estimate, you're saying, here's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Here's what you can do with it. Here's what you're paying me. That mm-hmm. should be the, the real genesis of the front of the contract, the, the small print on the back. On uh, a wedding contract, um, well, let me go first, estimate and invoice. Mm-hmm. And if you do use a delivery memo, on the delivery memo as well. So, so that's where the, the usage license itself, yeah. that's where we're presenting it to the end client, yes. um, is on the estimate, on the invoice, um, and, and they're seeing it multiple times. And then also... Um, uh, there's that the plus usage, yep. um, which is uh, I found that pr- pretty useful when I started to to write mm. licenses for my commercial clients. Once, yeah, I, once I realized that I should probably be doing that, um, but this plus system, I don't. Do you want to talk about that? Or? I, I I know a little bit about it and, and know the fellow that uh, set it up, Jeff Sedlick. Um, it's a very good tool. It helps you spell out very specifically um, what kind of license you'll want. We find that, that today, unless you're working on a, on a major campaign or major advertising piece, that um, there are usually multiple uses in there because mm-hmm. a lot of companies immediately want web use, social media, and maybe collateral mm-hmm. and that. So you have to um, bundle those particular rights together and sometimes you have to be careful how you spell that out to them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, as clear as you can be is only beneficial. And, and list form, do you do list form when you write your license or is it paragraph I, form? I tend to do it in a paragraph form um, uh, just because that's the way I've done it for many, many years. Um, I think Blinkbit does it more of a, a list. Mm-hmm. Uh, both are fine. Mm-hmm. And the list may offer more clarity mm-hmm. um, and or or. That's a, that's a, that, that can make a, a difference in how people interpret things. And the key thing for putting it in the estimate um, when you're hoping the estimate is signed and returned to you and have the job is if there's an issue about the rights being granted or mm-hmm. what the client's receiving, it's addressed before you do the project, yeah. not a surprise afterwards. Mm-hmm. I know photographers will put the usage rights on there and they thought, you get the, I thought I owned the pictures and could do whatever I wanted. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. just paid you all this money and I can't do what I want with these. Right. Well, the, so you want yeah. to avoid that. So it's prior. on that estimate. And then yeah. if, if the project, like project creep or whatever you want to call it, if, if, they want, mm. if they want to use it more, then you can charge more in the actual yes. final invoicing. If, if you have yeah. that. And, and the thing today that a lot of clients are telling you that they need a, a buyout or they need all rights, and those are unfortunately legally nebulous terms, either they want unlimited use or they want unlimited exclusive use. And it's an interesting thing, because we see this all the time, actually in ASMP forums, even in my ASMP's architecture forum. Well, I've got somebody that wants unlimited exclusive use, you know, and I just, you know, that means all I can do is use it for my portfolio and my, my marketing, and the answer is no, you can't. Exclusive means one thing, one. Mm-hmm. One user. Mm-hmm. Exclusive isn't two users. <laughs> so if you sign an exclusive contract, if you, in essence, under the law, if you give somebody unlimited exclusive use of your image, mm-hmm. you've transferred the copyright Forever. to them. Mm-hmm. Because and when you, you say unlimited, with yeah. that because yeah. you can't do it. Mm-hmm. So, or you need to license it from them because you gave them your or get a, a dispensation yeah. to, to their license saying right. that I can use them. So you want to be very careful what the client's asking for, and and sometimes, and this is sort of the why they call it the art of pricing. 
um, trying to find what that usage should be, looking at industry standards helps you get a gauge of where the marketplace is. But at the same point, it's feeling out the, the client on what they're going to do. And we'll have clients and we'll always ask, how are you going to, my, the phrase I use is to say, tell me about the project and how you're going to use the photographs. Mm -hmm. And they will start talking about it. We want to do this and this and this. Well, they usually are requesting the photographs to be made because they have a specific immediate need. Mm -hmm. And then they start thinking, well, we could do this with it and we could do that with it and we might do this with it and we might do that with it. My experience over 40 years has shown they use it for what the initial thing is that right. they, they yeah. wanted it for. Mm -hmm. They might do it something. It's, it, the, the mites are a little more common with social media postings and, mm -hmm. and so forth. But if they need it for a brochure, they need it for an ad, they need it for a proposal, that's what they're having the photographs done. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the primary use. So you have to look at the other rights you're granting and saying, is there real value to them? And sometimes the way around it with a savvy client is saying, well, look, let me give you a fee for doing just this use with the photographs. If you wanted, if you find later that you need to do those other things, come back to me and, and we can work out a price. Now, some photographers have used that as a way to hold clients hostage when they want to reuse the image and say, now you want it and you're successful with it, I'm going to hold you over a barrel. That's unethical. I think it's completely wrong. What we'll do is if a client has been burned that way, those are the clients that say, I want all rights because they've been burned by somebody. Mm -hmm. On the other side, I say, look, we can agree now what I'll charge you in the future so you'll know and we'll live by that, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you, then you don't have any uncertainty. Yeah, so yeah. if they're nervous about mm -hmm. it, but um, a lot of times it's a situation that they, they'll hide behind the cover. It's our corporate policy. Our lawyers wrote up this contract, all the nonsense. But in most cases, you find that once, if they really want to work with you, they're going to find a way to work with you and, and work it out. But, um, but unfortunately, one of the things, and, and so I don't contradict what I said in our opening <laughs> statements, it's competitive out there. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. photographers, uh, there are a lot of newcomers that are charging next to nothing. And they basically say, well, here's the files, do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And even to advertising clients, they'll say that. And the advertising clients go, what's wrong with this person? The savvy buyers mm -hmm. want to know what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. But the smaller companies, like, cool, he's giving me everything and he's doing it for 500 bucks. You're telling me I have limited rights and it's costing me three or four or $5,000. It can be a tough sell to understand. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it's a situation. That's why that art of pricing is important, is understanding where your clients' realities are. And, it's, and again, it comes back to value. It comes back to actual residual value. They're buying X amount of ads or putting out this many brochures or something, but it's also how they're valuing it. And then you have to reach a decision, is their value proposition equal to yours? Mm -hmm. And there are times where it's not, and you just have to walk away and just mm -hmm. say, we can't do this deal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a scenario that that's hard to do, but at the same point, you don't want to drop the whole market down mm -hmm. and tell people this is what it's worth. Jim Kavanaugh, thank you very much for, for being on this My episode pleasure. of Wedding yeah. Photographers Unite. <laughs> um, actually, I want to leave, leave um, with one more, one more question, and that's just basically for any words of advice to younger photographers uh, that, uh, that, that, you, that you can mention to younger photographers. I think you might have even brought up some of that in our conversation the, here today. The, but. the most important thing for younger photographers, and I have a couple, um, 
that I'm trying to do this for. And it's just, it's paying it forward. People helped me when I was getting started. Find a mentor or find mentors. Mm. Uh, become involved, whether it's PPA, WPPI, ASMP, um, National Press Photographers Association, whatever your genre of shooting is, get involved in those groups. Find people that have been in the business and are experienced because there, there are a few jerks out there, but most <laughs> photographers want young people to succeed. They want them to be, grow to be good competitors. They want them to be on an equal footing. And um, I just wrote a note to a, a woman I see her work online, and I just said, I think that you're more concerned with just getting your work published than getting paid. Mm. And I think it was a, a moment for her mm -hmm. to realize that she should be getting paid. Mm -hmm. But if, if you can get together with other photographers, get together with maybe just three or four people that you know, and a, a once a month or once every couple months go out to breakfast, do something. For those young photographers, hook up in these associations, find somebody you can talk to because someone will take you under their wing mm -hmm. and, and, and give you guidance. And it's, it's, it's been a, a situation where um, I've got several right now that my door is always open to them. They can call me at any time if they're getting stuck. And I try to always give them words of encouragement mm -hmm. to push them on. And there's a lot of other photographers that do that. There's a number of people in our group that, that help out the, the, mm -hmm. the folks starting out. And I think that's the key. So don't miss that opportunity to, yeah. to become mentored. And then just don't give up yeah. in that. Hold on to the dream. Hold your fire. Um, and just stay persistent. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I just tell people, I'm a good photographer. I think my work's pretty decent. You get a hang for it after 40 years of doing it. But at the same <laughs> point, am I the most brilliant photographer out there? Not by any stretch. I've stayed in this business and stayed successful just by being persistent yeah. and sticking with it because mm -hmm. it's, it's what I love doing. It's what I wanted to do. Young photographers get into photography because of that passion and that drive. Don't let that passion and drive go away by doing work you don't like to do. And, 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 and find people that can help you. They're out there. Excellent. Jim, thank Wonderful. you so much for uh, being on our show here today. Uh, where can people find you online if they wanted to, wanted to follow you just on? Easiest way to follow me is uh, look me up on Facebook um, uh, or Google+. Um, I don't add photographers to LinkedIn. That's a whole other topic I can come back on. <laughs> I've heard that, that conversation from you before. Uh, there's so good like... reason for it. So if you're on LinkedIn, don't have other photographers on LinkedIn. It's not competitive. It's, it's how LinkedIn functions. But um, uh, Facebook's good. My website, which is getting ready for a major overhaul, is uh, www.cavphoto, C-A-V-P-H-O-T-O.com. Um, Google me. You'll find me in other places and some of the work around there. Okay. Jim, thank you so much for being on, and we, we really appreciate it today. So yes, thank you. Thank you. Yep. My okay. pleasure. Okay. And thanks again to Jim Cavanaugh for being on episode number 25 of Wedding Photographers Unite. Please do remember, listeners, that you can send in questions to info at weddingphotographersunite.com. And also, please do go to iTunes and leave a review. Subscribe there. Um, and Neil... Where can people follow you? Just Google me, N-E-A-L-U-R-B-A-N, uh, Facebook. I'm pretty much on there the most, and Instagram. I'm, you know, once in a while, and Twitter. You know, throw me a message, and so I can use it more often. So <laughs> I, I always like seeing that notification on Twitter. It's like, ooh, what's going on here? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. We've, got, we've got a couple cool. tweets since, since starting the show here. <laughs> and so. uh, what about you, Andy? <laughs> yeah, same thing. I just Google me, Andy Buscemi, B-U-S-C-E-M-I, 
and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm pretty much, I, I've been fortunate enough to get all the Andy Buscemi's, the normal ones, without <laughs> ones or twos or things like that before or after. So uh, thank you so much, listeners, for listening in to episode number 25, and we will see you next time. All right, bye. Wedding photographers. Unite.